You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. It is from 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 through 16. So if you want to open your phones, scroll down there. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says... And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And uh, (laughs) um, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind, but hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So also, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. You're here to worship with us this morning. If we have not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Will, and it is uh, my real honor to be able to open up this passage. Um, we are working our way through the book of First Thessalonians, and so um, really what we, what we see this morning is uh, the role that God's Word played in the formation of this church a long time ago, and so uh, a, lot, a lot for us to receive from. Let's pray together as we get ready to jump into this uh, passage. Let's, let's pray. Our great God, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for your inspired word that was just spoken over us. And I pray that with the help of your Holy Spirit this morning, we as your people, as your children, would learn how it is that we grow in your word. You've just spoken. How do we now need to respond? Would you help us with that? Would you help us to uh, put our faith more deeply in your revealed word? Father, we confess our need for you. When it comes to your word, you have the words of life. But we so often think that we can do life and um, live without your word. And so would you humble us, make us hungry and eager and desperate for uh, your living and abiding word in our lives. God, we thank you for for this morning. We thank you for this time. And we now uh, say together as your people speak to us. For we as your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to just take us back briefly six years ago, summer of 2016, when New City Fellowship was beginning to uh, become a reality. And I want to just ponder this question freshly with you. Why did we plant this church? Was it to give a uh, new uh, option uh, to Christians on the buffet of churches that are in uh, Manassas? Uh, was it merely, did we, did we plant this church merely to uh, create a place for social life and community? Uh, did we plant this church merely to help people in our community that are, that are struggling? All, all of those are perhaps uh, on the table except for the buffet one, but, but it comes down to this. Why did we plant New City Fellowship? Our core longing 
and desire that remains the same here to this day is that we, we planted this church and we continue to walk in this church to see lives transformed by the word of God. We planted this church to see lives transformed by the word of God. In 1 Timothy, uh, Paul describes the role of the church. He says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. So the church has this, this calling, this obligation to uphold the truth of God's word. And the result of that, when we experience God's word truly in our lives, is that we are transformed. We are never the same. And, and that's what we long to see when we planted this church. I remember growing up in this town uh, and what it was like to live before the gospel had changed my life. I remember how my whole world got turned upside down when I met Jesus and how I was completely redeemed and transformed. How nothing in my life was the same and how after that I longed for other people to experience the same, the same thing. And over the past six years, we've seen our people gather around God's word. I think of different examples of it. In the early days of our church, there was a study of systematic theology that went on early uh, at Girani Coffee House. Before people would head off to work, uh, people would, would gather there, 15 or so people around this heavy textbook, simply asking the question, hey, what does this mean? How does God's word, uh, what does this describe about this area of God or this area of our salvation? And seeing people from all walks of life gathered together there. Um, raise your hand if you've participated in a discipleship group at New City before. Let me just see a short show of hands of people who, who have done that. We've got uh, 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 dozens of people who participated in that. We had a season where we had some 20 plus discipleship groups where people during that time were opening up the book of Colossians, three or four people looking into that on maybe a, a night of the week or over Zoom somewhere, simply asking, uh, what does this say and how does this apply to my life? We have people who gather here regularly in this, in this congregation, ears attentive to, to what's being read and, and preached on from God's word. There's a hunger for God's word in this church, and we've seen lives transformed as a result of it. And so the simple point that I think we can draw out of this passage in 1 Thessalonians this morning is this. God's word changes our lives. The Word of God transforms our lives, but that's not just a given. It, it's not enough for God's Word to merely be spoken or read. There are elements, you could say, or um, maybe even obligations that are on us for God's Word to actually have an effect. So God's Word changes lives, but you simply being present in this room this morning, uh, listening with your ears, uh, is not a given that that, that will be enough. There are, there are elements that we need to embody for God's Word to change us. And what I want to do is consider some of those factors this morning. I want to look with you at four factors that we need for God's Word to change us, to transform us, to, to save us. Um, and before we look at those factors, what I want to do is just spend a little bit of time discussing together what do we mean when we say God's word? Um, uh, what, what, what do we mean by that? Uh, when we say God's word, what we're saying is uh, God's revelation to us. So what is a word? A word is an expression of a thought, an expression of an idea. Uh, so uh, recognize this morning that the God of the universe has thoughts, has ideas, has plans. 
that we would otherwise have no access to. But God has chosen to take his thoughts and his ideas towards us and to reveal them through his word. Uh, God's word is God's self-disclosure, God's revelation to us as his people. Uh, And we believe that uh, God's word is comprised, is summarized in the 66 books of the Bible that we preach from here at New City. And we believe, this is just right off of our um, statement of faith, right off of our website. This is what we say about the Bible. We believe that God wrote the Bible through men without error. The Old and New Testaments in their entirety constitute the written word of God and are without error, both inerrant and infallible in the original manuscripts. They were written by men through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and are therefore authoritative in all matters for the follower of Christ. If you didn't capture every word that I said there, you can go on our website and and read that. That's what we believe about the Bible. It's God's word to us. It's God's self-disclosure. It's his revelation. Now, it's important to just make a quick note that's, that's captured in this passage. How did God's word get to us? What is the medium or the means that God used uh, to reveal himself to us. And it's clear here in this passage that he used human agents. Uh, in, in verse 13, let me read that one more time. It says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So, yeah. Two sort of agents are involved here in God's word. Of course, uh, Paul says, you received words from us. Like he as a human being came and spoke words to this new church, but he says that they received it uh, not as the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God. And so God has chosen to use in the Old Testament prophets and the New, the new Testament apostles uh, as the medium or the means through which we receive his word. Uh, the apostles were those that were witnesses to his resurrection that were then called to be the foundation upon which the church was built. Um, so God's word is his revelation to us. It comes through to, to us through the agency of, uh, of apostles. Um, and just one more consideration that I want to hit before we jump into how God's word is effective in our lives. And I, I want to get to this question. Is there a central point or a central idea related to God's word. So in your Bible, uh, depending on how exactly it was translated, there are some 700,000 words in, in your Bible. Are, are all of these words sort of moving in a particular direction? Is there a central theme of the Bible? When we say, and Paul says, the word of God, is, is that centered on something? And we want to say, absolutely, yes, it is. What it is all pointing to is the work of salvation accomplished for us by Jesus. That is the central theme of the Bible. There's all kinds of things and all kinds of genres of literature in the Bible that you can read. All of it is pointing to Jesus. I want you to see this in uh, Luke chapter 24. It's after Jesus' resurrection. He's on uh, what's called the road to Emmaus with two disciples. They didn't realize that they were talking to Jesus, uh, and they were deeply troubled at what had happened. They didn't know that he had risen from the dead yet, but he says something very important about the central focus, the central theme of Scripture in Luke 24, 26. It says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then here's the key in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning 
himself. This is what just, just happened. Jesus just took this, these disciples through a Bible study, starting in Moses, so that's the first five books of the Bible, and then through the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament, and he says, all of these things were written concerning who? Jesus. The, the central theme, the central element, the point of God's word that's described here is what was accomplished for us uh, by the, the person and work of Jesus, okay? So, so far, we're probably a bit abstract and theological. Uh, hang with me, because now I want to transition. If, if that's what God's word is, it's his revelation to us, given through uh, the apostles and prophets that centers on the message of the person and work of Jesus. If that's what it is, what needs to be in our lives for us to receive it and for us to be changed by it. Here's, here's the first element that I want to walk through with you. In order for God's word to change us, what do you need? What has to happen? Number one, you got to have faith. Okay, we're going to talk through that, but is that, is that helpful for you? Just like, how does God's word change my life? You're struggling with something. Well, a pastor just says you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. It's like the uh, uh, George Michael song, you got to have faith, that Fred Durst redid. Do you remember that in the 90s? Uh, for some of the 90s kids, if, uh, two or three of us in the room know what I'm talking about. Uh, you got to have faith, and I see people even, even doing the Fred Durst uh, version as I, as I mention it, but, but you got to have faith. Now, when I say that in order for God's word to be effective in your life, you simply have to have faith, that sounds light and trivial because we don't fully understand what is meant by biblical faith. For many of us, faith is mere mental assent, a, a mere check of the box. So like, do you believe in Jesus? Like, yeah, I guess so. Like, check the box, yes. And that's, that's all that, that we mean by that. Uh, uh, simply a um, engagement of the mind. But uh, what this passage is going to help us see is that, that biblical faith, faith that transforms our life, life goes much deeper than that. And in order to understand that, there are three elements that have to be present for it to be true saving and true biblical faith. And I want to walk through those three elements with you. The first thing for us to have faith that's needed is knowledge. We have to actually receive information about Jesus uh, for there to be faith. You have to uh, know something about him. When we hear about Jesus for the first time, that's that first element of, of faith. Here's the second element. It's not enough to merely hear about Jesus. You have to decide for yourself, do you believe what's being said about Jesus is true or false? Uh, is this a myth that's made up, or, or is this uh, truly uh, reality? Is this a, a, something that God is truly revealing to us? You have to receive the information, believe is it true or false, but that's where many of us stop when we think about what it means to have faith. Receiving God's word, check the box in my head, yes, I believe it's true, but there is a much deeper element that's necessary for it to actually have an effect on our life. What is that deeper element? You have to put your trust in what you believe to be true about Jesus. Your trust has to be in it. And so I want you to see all three of these elements working in this passage. So first Paul says, we thank God constantly that when you received the word of God, so check the box, number one, they received the information about Jesus. There was a time when they had never heard of him, now they had. They received the word of God. Uh, and they, second point, it, it, it later says that they accepted it. So number one, they received it. Number two, they uh, accepted it. They affirmed it to be true, but that, of course, does not go far enough. Uh, read what it says finally at the end of verse 13. 
that they received the word of God, uh, they accepted it, uh, end of verse, verse 13, which is at work in you believers. That's the final step. And when we hear believer, we just hear check the box. But if you were to translate that word out of the original language, you could almost say that these were, uh, that God's word was at work in these trusters, these people who had put their, their trust in God's word. Uh, they became uh, not people of mere mental assent, but people of faith. They entrusted themselves to it. I, I think the way Ligonier Ministries describes these elements is helpful. I'm just going to read it, and then I'll give you an illustration for it, okay? Faith always has an object, namely Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus, we must first know something about him. That's the first step. Number two, but knowing a body of content, however, is not enough for saving faith. We must affirm the truth of its content. Millions of people know something about Jesus, but they do not believe that it's true. Saving faith requires uh, the, uh, the conviction that the word is actually true. But then the final point, even knowing the facts and believing them to be true are not far enough in themselves to make us Christians. Demons affirm the truth of what God has said, but they do not trust him. The third element of entrusting ourselves into the hands of Jesus Christ to the living truth must also be present for our salvation. So it's this third element. Here's my illustration for us. I never use objects. I'm going to use one. Can I ask my wife to bring up a chair for me this morning? She didn't even know this was part of her assignment. Chelsea, thank you for bringing that up. So Here's the elements of faith, and we can face that way. You don't have to do anything else. That's it. Um, that's all. Thank you for that. So I've just received something. First element of faith present, like the chair has been given to me. And now I have to make a decision. Has Chelsea actually given me a chair, or she might enjoy me just falling on my backside in front of the entire congregation? Is this some sort of trick? Is this some sort of... Um, uh, like uh, illusion. Uh, no, I'm going to say that I actually do believe that this is a chair, but have I yet exercised biblical faith? No. When I've exercised true faith is when I take all of my weight and I put it on the chair. Does that, does that make sense? Is that, is that helpful for you? Now, let's get more personal about this. I don't, let me just put this back. I don't, I don't need that anymore. There you go. Um, Everyone in the world falls into one of the categories of what they need for biblical faith to be present. There are people around the world that have never heard the name of Jesus, and they at a bare minimum need someone to go to them to communicate the information about them. Uh, there are other people, and some of you might be in this room, and we welcome you. Like, you've heard about Jesus and his resurrection, all of that. You just don't believe it. Uh, you, you're at a place where you'd say you've received it, uh, but you, you reject it as truth. Uh, so that's some people in the room Here's the challenge and what it comes down to for most of us in this room. It's not that we haven't heard the truth of God's word. It's not that we don't even mentally believe that it's true. The question for you and I is, are we actually putting the weight of our lives on what God has said? That's my struggle. That's probably your struggle. We, we know that the Bible says that our salvation depends on what Jesus has done. We know that to be mentally true, but we are still placing the weight of our lives on our own performance for God's acceptance of us. 
or we know that it's true. Like we can mentally say we've read Psalm 23. You know, maybe we even have it plastered up on our wall somewhere. We know that it says that God will provide for us. He's our good shepherd. He will meet our needs. But for me to get in those green pastures that's talked about in Psalm 23, God might help, but really it's on me to do that. I've not placed the weight of my life on what God has spoken about his care for me. Or maybe in a place of suffering, you know that it says that even in the midst of suffering and difficulty, that God is still for you, that God still loves you and he has a plan. Uh, But in the place of suffering, uh, that reality is completely absent and you think that God has forsaken you. In what area of your life do you need to move this morning from mere mental assent on God's word to actually placing the weight of your life on it. To say, God, not only do I mentally say like, yes, I checked the box, but I trust you. I trust you to save me. I trust you to provide for me. Uh, I trust that you're good even in hard circumstances. In order for you to actually experience the transforming effect of God's word in your life, it's got to move from just head knowledge. It's got to move to something that you put the weight of your life on. And so can I encourage you with this this morning? Number one, man, get into God's word. Get into his promises for you. Get into his instruction for you. And then don't just sort of let it go in one year and out the other. Uh, Put the weight of your life on what he said. The first element that we need for God's word to actually change us is uh, to, to trust, to truly have real biblical faith, trusting in God's word. That's the first thing that's described in this passage of this element of faith. Of, of, of faith. We need faith itself, but, but here's the second thing that we need. We need the community of faith. We need true biblical faith, and we need the community of faith. So the first thing we're talking about this morning is a bit abstract. You can't put your hands on God's word. Like, yes, you can hold the Bible, but it's words. You can't, you can't, it's not tangible, it's not real. Paul begins by talking about this abstract reality that we put our trust in, God's word, but then he moves into something concrete, something real, something that you can see and, 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 and even see modeled. So he says right after their faith, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Judea. So they started with God's word, but they also had something else. They had real examples, real imitations of God's word for them to follow. Um, Similarly, we need the community of faith for us to grow in God's word. And there's really two applications here for us that I think are helpful for us to to, to grow. Two, Two imitations that we need in order to grow. One is in the present the other is in the past. So uh, present imitation. Paul says that they not only heard the word of God, but had examples that they followed as well. Uh, Paul knew how important it was in the church's life for there to be real examples. Elsewhere in First uh, Timothy 2, he says uh, to Timothy, you have followed my teaching. So that's that abstract word part. You followed my teaching, but, but also my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings. Paul became a real living example for the people in his life. And this is so important for some of you to to follow Jesus and walk with him for these reasons. Some of you can read about, like for example, what Ephesians says about marriage. You can read the page, you can read the words on the page. But because of maybe your upbringing in the house you grew in, you have no idea what that actually looks like. 
You need people to imitate real community of faith to follow that. Some of you read what the Bible says about parenting. And because of your own circumstances, you have no idea what that actually looks like. Some of you, maybe even in singleness, wonder, what does it look like to walk with Jesus in this season of life? And you, have, you can read about Paul. He was single. How did that look for him? But you have no real examples of what that looked like. We, in order to grow, need God's word personally, but we need people in our midst that can model and exemplify what we read on the pages. And so this could apply two directions for you. Some of you may need to just have like the courage, the boldness, whatever you want to call it, where you see someone in the church, maybe someone in your life, and there's an aspect of their faith that you'd say, man, that is worth imitating. I would love to understand the Bible they do the way they do. I would love to have a marriage like they have. I would love to have a prayer life like they have. And what that means for you is just having the boldness to say, hey, could I, could I meet with you? Could we grab coffee? Could we sit together and talk through that? And then there are maybe others of you on the other end of this where you see people who are struggling with some area of their life. And it's something that God has brought you through and given you his word, not just uh, through your ears, but experientially. You've, you've encountered God in the midst of a particular season of life and you see somebody else struggling there. What would it look like for you to become not a perfect one, but at least a real flesh and blood imitation, example of God's word for someone um, that's, that's finding their way a- as you once did? We need imitations and examples in the present, and we need examples and imitations from the past. Let me explain what I mean by that. So let me read just uh, verse 14 one more time. Paul to the, first, to the Thessalonians says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Uh, Paul says that this church, kind of living in their present time, became imitators of churches that existed before them. Uh, The church began in Judea, you know, uh, modern-day, you know, Jerusalem, and then it went through the, the coming decades to spread throughout the Roman world. Uh, but Paul commends these ch- this church in Thessalonica because they looked backwards to a church that existed before them and they imitated them. They learned from churches that had gone before them. And um, uh, we, have ne- we need to hear this especially because we have been trained culturally to basically... Uh, disassociate and disengage from anything that went before us. So what is the uh, air that we breathe? People call it post-modernity. We live in the post-modern world. And much of uh, the post-modern world is basically looking backwards and saying, everything that they did was terrible. We are pressing on to sort of this liberated free future. We have really nothing to learn from the past. In fact, all there is to do from the past is to deconstruct. And even though we've never constructed or built anything, we're going to deconstruct the things that went before us and sort of chart our own territory and sort of exist in this place of uh, uh, thin air, not connected to what went before us. We need to look at the past as bad and oppressive and be liberated from it and press on to a totally new future. That's not to say that we don't criticize where the church has gone wrong in the past. Of course, the church has things to to, to criticize. But in order for us to grow, we have to understand that we are connected to something much bigger than just ourselves. There is much for us to learn uh, from those who went before us. And we, we simply need to recognize that this little church is part of something much bigger 
um, than, than, than just us. There are Christians who lived long before us that we should learn from. And so why would we read a creed, even with varying translations uh, of how we did that? It would have originally been written in, in Greek, but we you know, had a couple translations this morning. Why, why would we read that? Uh, like, are we just trying to be like hip and trendy to do things from, from the past and to recover it? No. When we read a creed, we are connecting ourselves to those who went before us saying we are a part of the whole church that has existed long before us and will exist long after us. Why do we follow a certain liturgy sometimes? Same reason. One of the reasons even we participate in the Lord's Supper every week uh, is because we are connecting ourselves with the church that went before us. We need to look backwards uh, at Christians who have walked before us and learn from them as well. And so in your daily life, what does that look like? Let me just encourage you with this. I'm sure you have some awesome podcasts that you listen to some uh, New York Times best-selling books that, that benefit you. Hey, that, all that is fine and good. My simple encouragement to you is, in the midst of all the sort of new cutting-edge stuff that we receive from, and read, read from people from long ago. Even study creeds and confessions of faith that have been around long before we have. Uh, read biographies. If you want some um, recommendations, I'd be happy to give you. Read about those who have gone before us so that we can do what it says in verse 10. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God uh, in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Second element that we need is um, examples to to imitate, to follow. Uh, Here's the third component that we need in order to grow uh, in in God's word uh, revealed from this passage. Um, Paul goes on to show that the church in Thessalonica imitated the church in Judea not just in growing and maturing, but they also imitated them in suffering. In suffering. And I don't want to misinform us this morning. What we're saying is that God's word applied to your life, transforming your life, will give more peace, joy, and satisfaction than anything you will experience in this world but that does not preclude the fact that God has also called us to suffer. We, let me keep reading after verse 14. Um, you know, it says, For you suffered the same thing as your own country, from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove, drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. And so there's a lineage of suffering here. Paul says to the Thessalonians, You guys suffered but you did that in the wake of the church in Jerusalem suffering, and the church in Jerusalem did it in the wake of Jesus suffering, and even Jesus did it in the wake of the prophets who had been in the Old Testament who suffered. There's this long lineage of people who faithfully walked with God, but things didn't go great for them in their life as a result. There is joy and peace and satisfaction that we find in applying God's word in our life, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't have for us also difficulty in suffering. Walking with Jesus does not remove suffering, but it does reframe it. It it means that the suffering and the difficulty that we go through in our life is not unintentional. It's not without a purpose. It it, it doesn't uh, uh, just exist for no reason at all. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all a joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Did you hear that? The testing of your faith produces something in you. It produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
know, when Paul says perfect there, that usually doesn't mean like without flaw. Perfect in, in the New Testament more so has a, an idea of um, walking in the, the purpose that you were created for. He's saying here, for you to walk in the purpose that God has for your life, an essential element of arriving there is difficulty and suffering. Uh, the Thessalon- Thessalonians experienced it. We ourselves will experience hardship in our life as we follow Jesus, uh, but that, that, that doesn't preclude his presence from us and his purpose in it. And, and I think Tim Keller says this so well. This is the great hope we have with whatever kind of suffering you're facing in your life right now, whether it be relational, physical, emotional, whatever kind of suffering you have in your life right now, you can, you can hold on. You can hold on to this promise. God will never ask you to suffer more for him than he already has for you. God will never ask you to suffer more for him than he has already done for you, and he suffered intensely for you in love. Suffering is a part of this experience of having God's word transform our life, and then one final area here. We've looked at true faith. We've looked at the community of faith to grow in God's word. We've looked at suffering with God's word, and then there's this final element of sharing, sharing God's word with others. Down in verse 16, Paul describes this. He says, by hindering us, uh, you know, those who had gone before that had tried to hinder him from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Uh, If God's word will have its full effect in our life, we need to trust it, imitate others, suffer, and, and even share it with others. The evidence that God is working in your life is that you have a desire for other people to experience the same thing. The evidence that God's word is transforming your life is that you now have a desire for other people to experience the same thing. Um, Paul spoke the word that other people might be saved. Paul himself was radically saved, and he described other people experiencing the same thing. I had a, just a profound moment. We, were at a, we had our community group dinner this past week, and um, we were talking together as men over there. We were at the uh, Crossroads Tavern, the board game place up the road, and we were talking about, like, what is a community group do we want to study next? And we were looking, maybe we could do a theology book or something like that. But somebody who was just baptized at New City sa- said the following. He said, what if we did a book on evangelism? And, and here, here's why I want to do that. God is doing so much in my life right now, and I just so badly want to tell other people about it I just don't know how to do that. Like, I don't know how to strike up that conversation. I'm a bit like, yeah, man, join the club. It's, it's, not, an, it's not an easy thing. Uh, but you're hearing from that moment, like God working in someone's life so powerfully that it's wanting to, 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 to then pour over onto other people. Was there a time in your life that you could say, man, God is doing so much in my life. I just want to be able to share it with other people. Have you, have you lost that element of desiring to, to communicate to other people what God has done in your life? Paul was transformed by the gospel, and he spent his life seeking to communicate it to other people. Has the gospel so transformed you that you desire to do the same? Um, how do you go about doing that? That sort of begs the question. It was brought up in community. How do you do that? Here's just a great way, I think, in our era, area. Um, just you, utilizing questions. There's a great book called Questioning Evangelism by a guy named Randy Newman. We might go through it as a community group. 
but it's basically looking at the model of Jesus, of how he would often respond to people with questions, to invite dialogue and conversations. Questions I'll ask people, just at Manassas Mall the other day, I was talking with someone, just the simple open door of, hey, do you, are you a part of a church around here? Has that ever been a part of your life? Um, do you have thoughts about spirituality, about Jesus? Um, you know, what do you make of the resurrection of Jesus? These are, these are questions that, that could come up with, and a couple of resources that, that might help you in this area. One, that book called Questioning Evangelism. I've also benefited greatly from uh, J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Those are just a couple of resources in this area, uh, but an element or an evidence that we know that, that God's Word is transforming us is that we want to share it with others. We want to share it with others. So, this, this is, again, zooming out what we're after this morning. How does God's inspired word transform our lives? One, we have to have true faith. Two, the community of faith around us. Three, um, we need to, to walk in suffering and press into God's word in the midst of suffering. Four, we need to share it. Finally, as we get ready to close, here is the most important question for you to consider deeply this morning before we come to the Lord's table. We're talking about what happens when God's word begins to transform us, begins to save us, begins to redeem our lives. Here's the question you've got to come to face with this morning. What happens if God's word is not effective in your life? We're talking about how to make it effective. What, what happens if God's word does not have a, a, its effect in your life? And particularly, God's word of the gospel the saving news of Jesus. Um, Paul says in verse 16, I want you to note it, it's very, it's very important. It says that he spoke the word of God, that, that the Gentiles, those were those in Thessalonica, non-Jews, he, he spoke the word of God that the Gentiles might be saved. Not just helped, not just changed, not just made better people. That's not just what we're after this morning, but he spoke that they might be saved. In Romans 1.16, famous verse, Paul says something very similar. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So this, this word of God, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. So God's word coming into our lives, friends, is not just a matter of being better people. God's word coming into our lives is not just a matter of being different, not just a matter of being faithful Christians at church. God's word coming into our lives is a matter of what Paul is saying here of salvation, of salvation. And that implies a question, salvation from what? What is it that we need to be saved from? And he says something interesting here. He says uh, that these people who were opposing the gospel, um, that they were to fill up the measure of their sins. That word sin, I think Daniel described it so well earlier during our time of, of confession. You know, we're, we're talking all about God's word this morning. What is sin? Sin is our rejection of God's word. Sin is us looking to the God of the universe and his spoken word to us, uh, the God who created and designed everything and saying, no, I'll go my own way instead. Sin is our refusal to bow to the God of the universe as Lord and to surrender our lives to him. And it, it says about that, this element of sin, something quite troubling for us. It says that they were filling up the measure of their sins. 
What, what does that mean, the measure of their sins? What that means, friends, is that there is a measuring, an accounting, a recording of our sin. And so two true things about God this morning, and it's important as we have this conversation about sin. One, God is perfect. That means he cannot tolerate our rebellion and our sin against him. Here's the other uh, difficulty for us. God is omniscient, so, so follow me with this. What that means is, all of your sin from the, you know, the moment you were a responsible agency, uh, agent as a human being, all of the things that you have forgotten about, that you no longer feel sorrow for, uh, that are not really in your consciousness anymore because you're not omniscient, all the sins you have forgotten about, this is helping us understand, God hasn't forgotten any of it. God sees all of it. God sees your whole life from the moment you were born to this very moment right now, to the things you've done this past week, the things that you did long ago and have forgotten about. God has not forgotten about any of it. And then this is the terrifying reality we find ourselves in. It says here, uh, in accordance with this measure of their sins, wrath, wrath has come upon them at last. What is wrath? God's wrath is his righteous anger against us for our sins. We are all sinners. We all turn away from God. We all go our own way. And God is perfect, and he doesn't forget about any of it. He knows every evil we've ever committed. And you could imagine it as, as a cup. It says this language of measure, like our, our, our sins against God are accumulating before him in, in this cup that, that it, it describes at the bottom, will be poured out in wrath, poured out in punishment, poured out eternally, not only separated from God, but under his wrath, under his punishment for all eternity in hell. That is the result of our sins. That's what it says, that wrath has come upon them at last. So back to this just all-important question that we have to be faced with this morning. What happens if this message of salvation is not effective in your life. It means that you will answer for every sin you have committed against God for all eternity. That's what will happen. The word of the gospel, the salvation that is available to you through Jesus, is once again not a matter of being good Christians, not a matter of being better people, not a matter of being better parents or having healthier marriages, the word of the gospel is a matter of salvation. The question for you is, what will you do with it? You know, as we get ready to come to the Lord's Supper, um, I want to call to our mind the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, we just said that our sins fill up to the measure and, and that it will be poured out in God's wrath. What does Jesus say when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says he's getting ready to go to the cross. He says in prayer, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, let your will be done. What was in that cup? The full measure of your sins that would have been poured out on you in wrath, but Jesus in the garden says, nope, I'll step in front of them. Put it on me instead put it on me instead. That means for the one who puts their faith in the finished work of Jesus, the one who believes the gospel, all of your sins are paid for not by you, 
but by Jesus in your place. What kind of love is that? That someone would just say, not, not even just, hey, I'll help you with all of your sins a bit. I will take the full measure of your sins upon myself. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus suffered the wrath of God for you on the cross for your sins so that you might be saved. And if you believe that this morning, I want to invite you to participate in the meal that celebrates it. I want to invite you to participate in communion, to take the bread, to take the cup that symbolizes Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath in your place. If you are in a place where you'd say that's not true for you yet, um, here's a great way to know that. My stupid chair illustration, okay? I I know it's silly, right? But like, have you come to your pla- a place in your life where you've said, one, like, I need Jesus' salvation. Like, I, I cannot save myself. I cannot be a good enough person uh, to, to fix everything wrong in my life. And then have you come to a place in your life where you've said, I am taking the weight off of myself to be saved, and I am putting it all on Jesus. If you've not done that yet, then I urge you not to participate in communion this morning, but throw yourself on Jesus. He eagerly welcomes you. He eagerly welcomes sinful people uh, who have a high measure of, of things that you have done wrong in your life. He welcomes people who have a high measure of sin to, to cast themselves upon them and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, redeem my life. And so if you're not ready to take communion yet, I urge you to just stay in your seat and to, to ponder that invitation. And this is, to put it in a, in a, in a question, I, I, I just put it like this. Are you ready to, to, to allow Jesus to save you this morning? Are you ready to rest in the finished work of Jesus in your place? Um, let, me, let me pray for us. The way we take communion here at New City is uh, we'll have our hospitality team come up. What Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. You can take those elements back to your seat. Whenever you're ready, you can eat the bread and drink the cup. And so uh, let me pray for us during this time and you can co- then come forward when you're ready. Lord, every, everyone sitting in a chair in this room has a almost immeasurable um, accounting of sin against you. We all have turned our back on you and gone our own way. And yet, Jesus, you drink the cup. You experience God's wrath. You are punished. We are set free. What a gift. What a gift of salvation you offer to us this morning. Father, I pray that we would just glory in that salvation. I pray for people who are maybe ready to receive it people who have maybe been relying on being a good enough person, uh, people that have maybe been outright rejecting you would just look at Jesus on the cross at this moment and say, Lord, I give up. I surrender. I rest in what you have done, not what I can do. Father, we thank you for this time. Would you meet us now as we um, come to your table? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.